We are in part 22 of our Life of Worship series, and I entitled this morning's message, Look What I Made. And we're going to talk a little bit about design, so let's jump right into it. Here's the beginning concept. God is utilizing a unique design in you to change the world. Do you believe that? Let me tell you a very practical reason why you should. Simple formula, you're here. You would not be here if God was not utilizing you for his glory. That would be wasted space. Not going to happen. God will utilize what he creates for his glory. Every one of us have been individually designed uniquely to do something that no one else can do. Just as there's no two fingerprints that are the same, there are no two snowflakes that are the same, there are no two people. We are all individual, and God has knit together us into a package with multiple facets to bring God glory. They are different than everybody else. In your current environment, we have a tendency to step back and say, well, so-and-so is doing the ministry in my area, I can hold back. No, you cannot, because they cannot do what you can do. They will do what they can do. That's it. And sometimes we try to overstep our boundaries and do things that are outside of our gifting, and God tends to block those things. We get very frustrated. But understand this. God will bring himself glory through your successes and through your failures. He can bring glory through his enemies, but he is not going to allow you to be here if he's not going to utilize you. But part of the problem when we get into a discussion like this is that too many of us have fallen into a modern day trap. The modern day trap is this. What is God's one plan for me and am I fulfilling it? I believe that's a complete incorrect question to ask. Why? Because although it may be technically accurate, it reveals a bad mode of thinking. God did not design you for just one plan. God designed you to be able to live for him and be able to display his glory in multiple ways. Therefore, do not say phrases like, well, I've figured out God's plan for my life. Or, God, you need to reveal to me the one plan that I do. I want you to think this. God, what have you designed me to do to interact with my environment? How do I bring you glory by how you've built into me and on a moment-by-moment basis? You say, well, Lance, that's not really... That's not really biblical, is it? I mean, like, people have, like, that one big thing, right? I mean, Daniel, we know his big plan. I mean, he had, like, one plan. No, he didn't. Do you remember the story? Do you remember reading this? What was his one big plan? What, thrown in the lion's den? That wasn't the plan. Was it to be next to the king of a pagan empire as a believer? That was one of them. Was it, what, being a man of prayer? That was another one, yes? Was it being a man that could interpret dreams? That was another one. Was it being a prophet? That was another one. Do you understand that no matter what character you read in the Bible, you may only think of them in one thing, Samson, but understand 
There was all times, their whole life was not wasted until they did their one big moment, and then it was wasted after that. They were consistently engaging with God, and God was consistently moving through them. Not all of that stuff gets written down in the Bible. In the same way, you are not done. It's not like you do the one big thing. And a lot of people keep saying this, I think I've missed God's plan for my life. What do you mean you missed it? It's going right now. I mean, you're in it right now. Of course there's a plan that's going on. There's multiple millions and billions of plans that are coursing through. That's why as a life of worship, we go through life asking, God, what about now? What about now? What about now? What do you want me to do, Lord? Because he knit you together in such a way that you would grow up in this environment and think these thoughts and be interested in this and, and I mean, be in this family and know these things and be schooled in this area. I mean, those are not random. They are very specific to build you together to bring him glory. So do not think in terms of plan. Think in terms of design. God, how did you design me? Now, I don't know how many of you grew up like me, which is paranoid, but understand this. You're being watched at all times. People are picking up things off of you, and you are displaying God. If they know that you're a believer, and more people know that you're a believer than you think, they are going to estimate God through you. What are you displaying? The fill in the blank in front of you is very simply that. We are God's display. We are God's display. I, just yesterday, I was involved in an activity where I was uh, coaching a group, and they were doing things that I don't necessarily agree with. And I felt like, you know what, that's going to reflect on the fact that I'm one of the coaches and people are going to look over and go, so that's how God acts. Are any of you coaches, do your teams do what you want them to do? They tend to do their own thing, right? And then sometimes you're embarrassed. Or sometimes you look at it and you go, that's not at all what I asked you to do. But they're displaying and you feel like it reflects back on you. Well, sure enough, we are God's display out into the world. What are you displaying? What are you sharing to the world? What we're about to read is a story where God's going to bring David down into a close conversation and say, kid, I have built you into a design to do many things through you. And just as I have built you, so have I built a nation. I want those to work hand in hand that my glory might echo out into the universe. But I need you to understand it's bigger than you imagine. What I want you to do is I want you to stay close to me and I'll get the rest done. Would you turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 1. 2 Samuel 7, 1. In the Bibles that you picked up out of the chairs, it's page 259. 259, 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 1. Let's just read uh, the first three verses and we'll get started. Um, remember last time we were together, David brought the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem. He was dancing and praising God before it, and they were moving it in. It was this big, huge deal, and he had built a tent of meeting where they put the ark in, in Jerusalem, the city of David. Remember that? Now, the same story that we're going to read today is in 1 Chronicles 17. doesn't tell you a lot of new information, so I'm going to add that into today's message. 
But the other thing you need to realize before we begin is that this book that we're studying is not written chronologically. It's not written in order. It's written topically. The events that we're about to read likely occurred at the end of David's reign. Why would it be placed here? Because our last story was David brought the ark to Jerusalem. Now what does that mean in David's life? That's why it comes next. But be very careful in assuming that this happened next and this happened next. Sometimes the books are written topically. All right? So let's just read the first three verses and get kind of a feel. Then we'll pray and tear it apart. Now when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, go do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. Well, that's nice. Here you have two guys dialoguing, and one of the guys says to the king, so how are you doing, Dave? Well, I'm doing pretty good. However, I just realized that I live in a palace in the ark of God. Remember how excited we were, Nathan, when we brought that over here? We had this big, huge party, and we were all going dancing before God. Do you remember that? Well, this golden box with that God allows his presence to dwell near. It's sitting in a tent. Man, I live in the nicest house in this whole region. How is that cool? That's a great question to ask, don't you think? Maybe some of us would do well to ask that question in our own hearts. Let's see what God has to say. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would open up our eyes and our hearts as we go through the message today. And we ask, Lord, that you would... Open up your word to be spiritually discerned. And Father, a lot of us are new to this. We need to understand. Father, there are many of us that have been walking in this so long, it all feels cliche. We ask that you'd rock our world. Open up our hearts that you might be glorified in a greater degree. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So let's go through this. Now when the king lived in his palace... And the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies. All right, those are all indicators. The stories we're about to read is that David is still going to fight to a certain degree and get things done. So we know that it's later. His palace was not built till later in his reign because he had help from a guy named Hiram, king of Tyre. That guy didn't get into power till much later. Let's take a look at a map real quick if we have that available back there. Um, okay. This map doesn't really help us too much, but I get to use my pointer. Yeah, I love the pointer right there, right? So we're talking about Jerusalem. Those of you that are new, um, this David is ruling all of this Israel area, and we're going to be centering around on Jerusalem. But let me give you a better slide, this next one. This will give you an idea on what his area looked like. Now, if you're to go over to Jerusalem today, it's actually up on Mount Moriah. All of this is modern day Jerusalem. This is all a bunch of rocks and ruins, but this is what David would refer to as Jerusalem. This is the city of David. It's a very small area. If you were here a number of weeks back, I showed you photos that this is only now being excavated after all these years. Now, all this is the Temple Mount. If you think the big dome on the rock, all the pictures you normally see of Jerusalem, that's way up here. So when we talk about David's palace, it would have been at the height of this place where he could look down upon his current kingdom. That's the palace he's referring to. So let's go back to the story. We can leave that one up. Just leave that slide up. Now, the king said to Nathan the prophet, who's that guy? He's never shown up before. 
We get a brand new character that shows up in the story, who is Nathan. He's going to become really, really popular through the story of David's failure with Bathsheba. He's the guy that confronts him. He is David's one of two primary spiritual advisors. David has a prophet by the name of Gad, and now he has a guy named Nathan. Nathan becomes a big deal. It is actually Nathan who has the understanding and wherewithal to get Solomon, the right son, onto the throne after David dies. Nathan was significant in David's life. It may be for that very reason that when we look at history, we realize David had four sons through Bathsheba. One of them he named Nathan. They had a close relationship. Let's go back to it. Now, they're dialoguing back and forth as friends and as counselors. Now, when the king lived in his palace, the Lord had given him rest from his surrounding enemies. The king said to Nathan the prophet, Hey, Nathan, I dwell in a house of cedar. My palace is made of the best building materials that we have in the known world. Remember that king? I mean, he rafted them down from up north, and it was, they're resistant to rot, and they're aromatic, they're beautiful smelling, they look stunning. I live in the biggest house in the whole neighborhood. But that bugs me, Nathan, because the ark of God dwells in a tent. Nathan said to the king, Dave, that sounds like a great idea. Go do all that's in your heart. The Lord is with you. So let's start with the first basic question. Does that concern you? Does it ever concern you? about how much of your life you've spent building stuff for you and how little you've spent building the kingdom. How much you've invested in your comfort and how little you've invested in the pouring out of ministry. These are real questions to ask. Now here's what's intriguing about this. David really wants to build God something awesome. Guess what happens? God says no and shuts him down. But I love the idea that he wants to. I love the heart that this guy has where he's saying, you know what, God, I'm not comfortable if I'm completely rolling in it and you've got nothing. I can't handle that. I cannot allow me to be better off in my eyes than you. I need you to be the king, the one I focus on. So it sounds great. Everybody's got the best intentions. Sounds awesome. Look at the next line. Remember, Nathan just said, yeah, Dave, it sounds like a great idea. God's going to go, Nathan, come here. Smack! That's not what I said. Here we go. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David this. Thus says the Lord. Those are four very, very powerful words. Be very careful with those words. Do not mess with those. Do not use those lightly. The Old Testament law was this. If anybody says, thus says the Lord, and it doesn't come true, stone them to death. You do not mess with saying, God said this, I know it for sure, and you talk on God's behalf, and you're wrong. That doesn't fly. We can say all sorts of things because we do talk on God's behalf all the time. We can say things like, you know, I feel like God is leading me to. That's great. We can say things like, I'm trying to discern the will of the Lord and it seems like this. That's great because all those are tagged with humility. What you cannot do is say, God absolutely told me this because if it's not right, you're in trouble. Thus says the Lord, if you read those four words in Scripture, it's a lock. It's always true all the time. 
so we don't mess with that. Now, I get asked a lot, how do you discern God's will in your life? How, does, how do you do that? How do you know the right things to do? Well, that's a very difficult question for me to answer because it really depends on where you're at, where you're at with the Lord. What's your relationship with the Lord? Because it'll change how you discern his voice. For example, if you don't even know God, have no understanding, have no interest, no love for him whatsoever, and you're trying to find out what he wants you to do, that's an odd question to ask. If some of you are very, very close to the Lord, you know the word of God backwards and forwards, you would know his voice if you heard it, if you could discern and slice and dice and know his MO and be able to go, that sounds exactly like God, I would give you different counsel. Then you can start working with things like nuance and intuition and this is upon my heart and God has placed this on my heart, I believe, and wow, I noticed that this kept popping up in my life. This is no coincidence. Then we can start talking about those. But here's my main concern with why people ask, what is God's will for my life? I believe our motive is wrong. I believe that the majority of the time that we want to know what God says about something is so we can learn the way not to fail. What does it mean? Well, think about it this way. Let's say you get two job offers. You want to know what God has to say. Why? So it doesn't go badly for you. It's got nothing to do with what God wants. It has to do with God, which one is not going to bomb out on me. God, if I'm going to go to two schools, which is the one that's going to be more successful? Which is the one that's going to work out? Which one's going to lead to more of my comfort? Which one? Do you understand why that's the wrong question to ask? If you ask God what he wants to say, you better be willing to hear this answer. Hey, God, so, all right, here's the deal. I don't know, there's two cars, okay? Now, I don't know if I should be going much more the BMW route or if I should go much more Mercedes. I mean, I understand that the engineering on the BMW is pretty sharp. Okay, but Lord, what I really want is I really want a solid car. God, what do you think? You better be willing to hear this. What do, I, do I like BMWs or Mercedes better? Hmm, let me think about that one. Okay, you moron, hold on. Here's the deal. Here's my concern. You're not living for me. Oh, whoops, now you opened up the can, right? Now I'm going to talk to you about you. You asked my opinion. I'm going to tell you about my opinion. My opinion is you're not listening to me. You have no interest in me. So if you now you're asking me in my opinion, I'm going to tell you. I'm going to tell you that you have never, ever submitted your heart to me, and your life is absolutely contrary to me, and you're playing a Christian game, and all you're trying to do is tell everybody else and tell yourself that you're a good person. That's never going to fly with me. So what I need you to do is re-rack your whole life, let's start from scratch, and let's go hang out together. How about that? Whoa, didn't ask for that. Just want to know about the cars. Yeah? Do you want to know what God thinks? Because he might just tell you. That might be a completely different dialogue. Hmm. Let's not use God as a magic eight ball, yeah? All right. That same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? That's a rhetorical question where the answer is no. How do we know that? Because Chronicles says the answer is no. Well, that was easy. Chronicles writes it like this. God said, it is not you who will build me a house to dwell in. No, it's not going to work, Dave. That's not going to happen. I appreciate the effort, but that's not going to work. 
I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. I've been moving about from tent to tent, from dwelling to dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I ever, David, speak a word to any of the leaders of Israel, the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel? Did I ever say, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Hey, David, why are we talking about this? Why do you think I want a house? Well, I mean, because I had a lot of stuff and you didn't have anything. Right, but why a house? Why is that important to you? Do you think I live there? Do you think I dwell there? Do you think you can contain me? Do you think that I'm a God that can be housed? David, I'm not so sure that your theology is right here, buddy. I mean, I appreciate what you're thinking. I know you want to give me a good gift. However, if I allow you to do this, it might reinforce your bad theology. So no, I can't let you do that. Now, there's some other reasons I can't let you do that, which I'm going to reveal to you later. And he ends up telling him later, you can't build my house because you have blood on your hands. You're a man of warfare. And quite frankly, I need a different groove that's going to allow that to happen. What's he telling him? David, this is not what you were built to do. This is not your design. I know you want to do a lot of nice things. This is not part of the design I built into you. I actually am going to have your kid do it, not you. Let me ask a personal question. Have you ever had God reject you from something you wanted to do for him? God blocked you and let someone else do it and they were successful at it. That is so irritating. It's horrifying because you're like, well, God, that was my idea. I wanted to totally bless you like that. I wanted that to be my ministry. And then no matter what I did, you shut me down. Then someone else does it. No, now you're going to bless them. What was that all about? Because I designed that facet into them, not into you. I love your heart. It's not what I made you for. I know that it sounded good. And you know what? It was a brilliant idea. However, that's not what I wanted through you. And you need to be all right with that. Why can't you look at a kingdom mentality and go, well, that's neat. God got a present. It didn't have to come from me. Why are we getting jealous? Why is there envy? Let it go. Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts. Very cool name for God. What does it mean? The hosts are the heavenly armies. He said, now tell the king of Israel from the king over all creation who runs and is the warrior king over all the heavens. I tell angels who to kill and who to protect. I tell them what nation to destroy and what nation to rise up. I am the king of the greatest warriors of all the universe. Now I'm the one talking to him. Now you tell David this. I took you from the pasture, literally, kid. You spent your whole life out there with the sheep. I took you from nothingness, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Pause. He's been with him wherever he went. Anybody remember David's life up to this point that we've been talking? It's pretty miserable. His life has been on the run. Everything goes wrong, all this hardship. But God was with him every step of the way. Just because your life isn't going the way you want it or isn't going easy does not mean God's not there. God is there right along the way. If you are a child of his, you can be guaranteed of that, that he is walking with you. For he said, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Do you remember that? I will not leave you nor forsake you, but I'll be with you. 
No, it's not going to go like you want it to go. No, I'm not there just to bring you comfort, but I'm with you. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones on the earth. Are we still talking about David? Yeah. Uh, What star is on the Jewish flag? The star of? Interesting. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them. So they will dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. Israel up to this point had such a rocky moving. The Philistines take over, then we take over, and then we're in the land. No, we're not in the land. And he said, you know what? I'm going to calm everything down so you can put some roots down. I don't want my people hassled anymore. And violent men shall afflict them or waste them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. David, I appreciate that you want to make me a house. How about I make you a dynasty? You don't know how to make me a house. I'm not going to let you make me a house, but I can make you a house. You want that? When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, what does that mean? When you pass away. I will raise up your offspring after you, one of your own sons who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. We know from history that for the next 400 years, one of David's lineage is on the throne. Now, when we look at a lot of these words forever, in the Hebrew language, it's very open. It can mean forever or a really long time. We have to immediately understand this prophecy Because God is saying, this is what's going to happen for you. Yet we look at it and we go, in 587 BC, the Babylonians swept in, wiped out the south, wiped out Jerusalem. There is no throne. There's no guy from David's lineage on the throne in Israel right now, nor has there been for thousands of years. So was that a bogus prophecy? No. The Jews began to realize that fulfillment of this was that I'm going to allow you to have a long dynasty And then out of correction for you, I'm going to make adjustments. And ultimately, I'm going to bring about one from the throne of David that will be established forever. Who is that? Jesus Christ. Let's read about that. This is called the Davidic covenant. One of the most important covenants, a covenant that every good Jew today is very familiar with. They understand this inside and out. Because they're still in their hearts waiting for the fulfillment of this covenant. The difference between Messianic Jews and Orthodox Jews is that the Messianic believe that he has arrived. That's the difference. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. David, when I talk to you about your lineage, let me tell you this. They're not all going to be great. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men. He's talking about all the kings that are going to come after. It starts off really badly with Solomon. God has to go in and crack down on him right away. God has to crack down on all these Davidic kings. And God goes, listen, I'm going to be hard on them because I need them to lead my nation well. But, look at verse 15, but my steadfast love will not depart from them as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. David goes, I saw you remove a king right before me. Are you going to do that to my kids? God said, no, I'm not. I'm going to be patient with them and allow them to learn through it. When it says that he took away his steadfast love from Saul, you need to understand that that's Hebrew language. And a biblical concept, it does not mean God stopped loving Saul. 
It means in the Bible, love is not just a feeling. We always think about love as a feeling. Oh, you don't like me anymore. That's not what it means. Love is an action, an activity. So when it says, I loved Saul, it meant I was acting on his behalf, I was bestowing blessing upon him, and I was moving through him with my favor. But I pulled that back because he was rejected as a king of Israel. Doesn't mean he stopped loving Saul. Doesn't mean he stopped liking Saul. Okay, we have to be very careful with that language. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Now that's two times that forever is mentioned. I think the point is forever. Is it any wonder that the Gospels in the New Testament open up, many of them, with the genealogy of Jesus Christ, tracing from whom? David. Right off the bat, they'll say, and this one is the son of David. They'll keep saying that. When you go through Christmas this season, I want you to be looking through that story in light of all the Jews waiting for this covenant to be fulfilled. They knew that a Messiah would show up, an anointed one, the one sent by God who would be in the line not only of David, but in the line of Judah, just like Jesus was. They were waiting for him to come on the throne, and they knew that once he got on the throne, it would be established forever. That's why they were so disappointed when Jesus Christ didn't take the throne from Rome. They didn't understand how that could be true. What they did not see was that he came to save the people from their sins and that he would return again to set up a physical throne. They had their timing off. In accordance with all these words, in accordance with his vision, Nathan spoke to David. Then David went in and sat before the Lord, meaning he went into the curtain area where the ark was, and he sat down in a humble posture. You're going to hear him use the phrase servant ten times. In one prayer. I think he's pretty clear on his status before God. He knows his identity. And he said, who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you've brought me thus far? He uses seven times the phrase Adonai Yahweh. My master, great king of Israel. O God of the universe. He asks this question, who am I? That you would bless me like this. I'm just a man, God. Compared to you, I don't even know why you pay attention to me. But notice the difference between his prayer and our prayers. When God does something on his behalf, he says, why would you do that? When he does something on our behalf, we go, why are you taking so long? Why are you late? Why is it not what I asked for? Why is it not what I want? Do you see the difference between humility and entitlement? Whoa. Be very careful of praying with entitlement. King David, the apple of God's eye, the one who is the greatest king over all Israel, knew very well he is a servant of God and that it was God's grace that he even looked at him. So he says this prayer, and it's one long kind of convoluted prayer with really one message. Let's take a look at it. What is my house that you have brought me thus far? Yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord. This wasn't too hard for you. You raise up kings, you tear down kings, but it's a big deal to me. You've spoken of your servant's house 
for a great while to come. You've shown me future generations. And this is instruction for mankind, Lord God? Why would you tell me about my future? Why am I important enough for you to even say that? What does it matter to you, God? What more can I even say to you? For you know me, O Lord God, because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God. There is none like you. There is no God beside you according to all that we have heard with our ears. God, you're unique. But it's not just you. The things that you make are unique. Who is like your people Israel? The one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people, whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods. You drove them out. You established for yourself your people Israel to be your people forever. And you, O Lord, became their God. Let me do one quick side note before we close up that last few verses. In this church, we have great respect for the Jewish people. We are in their spiritual heritage line. They are our heritage. We were grafted in as Gentiles. Some of us here are Jewish. I'm jealous. I'm a Gentile. I was allowed in to join the family that the church would too be part of the family of God. But understand this, the Jewish people are still precious in the sight of God. He is not done with them. He is still continuing to work with them. He loves them to this day. He has his eyes upon Jerusalem. He knows what he's doing. He is going to bring about a tremendous revival in the Jewish nation at some point. When, we do not know. But I'll tell you this, do not ever disrespect the Jewish people. Just because they do not yet see, as we had uh, a gentleman come in and preach to us, right? Everybody remember Victor? Victor came in and he said, you remember this. Whenever you look and go, I can't believe the Jews don't get it. He said, they're being blinded so that you could come in. Understand, that's a gift from God. That is not their ignorance. That's why I was so heartbroken when I watched a TV show the other night. Um, I was watching a show that's totally inappropriate and your mom wouldn't let you watch it. So I'm not going to recommend this show to you because many of you, it would harm your delicate sensibilities. All right. So, uh, if you're not, if you can't handle hardcore stuff, please do not watch this show. Um, it's called gangland. Everybody watch the documentary Gangland. You don't have to raise your hand because everyone looks at you as if you're a bad person. All right. Gangland is a documentary series on TV that chronicles the gangs in America. It talks about what gangs have risen up and their history and things like that. For some reason, that's always fascinated me. And yet, the other night, it was actually Friday night, I was watching it. I was clicking through the channels and I came across it. And they're talking about the IKA. The IKA is the new organization that's taken over for the Ku Klux Klan. They're unfortunately alive and well in America. And they have a compound out in the south. And it's all barricaded and they have guns and all this stuff. And to walk into their trailer, they have a trailer, right? When you walk into their trailer, their mat on the ground in front of it is a Jewish flag. And every day they wipe their dirt 
on the Star of David, on the Jewish people, and then walk into their home. You guys, I've seen a lot of intense stuff, and I can handle a lot of harsh material. But my stomach sank. That you would wipe your feet on the flag of God's chosen people. Listen, you may do a lot of stupid stuff in this world. Don't do that. It just hurt my heart watching it. Let's pick it back up. And now, O Lord God, David said, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house, and do as you have spoken. And as you keep your promises, your name will be magnified forever, saying, the Lord of hosts, the king over the armies of heaven, is the God over Israel. And the house of your servant David will be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant. You said, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. The only reason I'm praying is because you said you care about me. And now, O Lord God, you are God and your words are true. And you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken. And with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. simple prayer is this god i can't believe you care about me like this please make it so what you've said make it true and i will bless your name and magnify your glory with what you've built into me thank you lord what an amazing prayer so we ask with this we close how are you built And are you maximizing the glory of God? Because don't wait for that one plan. Because you've got a million plans. And God wants to use you today. In all facets of life. Let's close in prayer. And we have a quick video. Heavenly Father, thank you for teaching us and guiding us. Father, as many people that hate your people. We ask that you would bless your nation that you would restore the Jewish people into your heart. We ask, Lord, that you would allow us in our individual circles of influence to consistently realize we're being watched and that we're displaying you. May we glorify you. Change us, Lord, so that we shine you more brightly. In Jesus' name we pray.